no free government ever preserved its liberty without uniting citizen and soldier in defense of the state. The sword should never be in the hands of any but those who have an interest in the safety of the community, that they may return to their private affairs and to the enjoyment of freedom and good order. Such is a well-regulated militia, composed of the citizens and freeholders who take up arms to preserve their property as individuals and their rights as freemen. So said Josiah Quincy Jr. in his 1774 observations on the Act of Parliament, commonly called the Boston Port Bill. Hey, greetings everybody and welcome back once again to Legalese. Now today we are going to be discussing the right to keep and bear arms and we are going to be looking at a common point uh, on which the gun rights community and gun control advocates tend to largely agree at why I believe that they both get things completely wrong. Hey, greetings, and welcome back once again to Legalese. My name is Bob. I am your host. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Uh, and I would like to extend a special welcome to uh, anyone who may be a new viewer to my humble podcast. Welcome. Uh, this is a place where we discuss all manner of constitutional law, as well as current events in other areas of law, as well as in politics and culture. Now, just so you know, you can find this uh, show in a number of different versions on a number of different platforms. Mainly, we like to do the video version that is available on YouTube, Rumble, and Odyssey. But you can also find an audio-only version available on Anchor and Apple Podcast. And we also have uh, all kinds of videos, articles, uh, information, and ways to support the show over on Substack. And before we dive in, uh, I have one kind of special quick announcement here that I am pretty excited about. So uh, I am in the process right now uh, of writing a book called Constitutional Sleight of Hand, an Explicit History of Implied Powers. And to learn more about the book and how to get a hold of it and all that good stuff, stick around until the end of the show. I will be covering it a little more then. Uh, other, also, there are links to uh, all of those different pages I just named like two seconds ago and to more information about this book down in the video description. And just one thing that I will say real quick uh, is that one perk you get when you order an advanced copy of this book is you get a shout out here on the show for being super awesome and for supporting this project. And since several people have already done that, I would like to say a special thank you to Mark Allen, to Dave Benner, and to Liberty Weekly for putting your fin financial faith behind this project. All right, with that said, we got a lot to cover today, so I guess we should just get down to business. So, I suppose, tragically, uh, Nancy Pelosi made the time today between calls to her stockbroker and to the attorney that she hires to keep on retainer to keep her ass out of jail for insider trading and other various rank corruptions to actually get the votes together to pass H.R. 1808. Now, this is the assault weapon ban of 2022 that I covered in my past couple of videos, actually. And she managed to sneak this one through earlier today, right before Congress went on its summer recess, which I guess makes the timing of this video nothing short of uh, impeccable. So, 
what I want to talk about is the fact that in debates over the Second Amendment, the conventional view is that the government ought to possess a monopoly on legitimate force, subject to the rights of individuals to act in emergency self-defense situations, and many treat the non-defensive circumstances in which our system decentralizes force as holdovers from days of non-professional police and soldiers. And when it comes to the Second Amendment, many believe that the only legitimate reason individuals may bear arms today is for individual self-defense against isolated criminal violence, such as a home invasion or something like that. So this is the idea that I want to attack today. Uh, this monopoly of force account that uh, is justifying the continued relevance of the American law's decentralization of legitimate force. And I am going to argue that this decentralization of force remains important for three uh, specific reasons. The first is that despite the rise of professional police, American law enforcement still enforces law far below desirable levels. Under enforcement of core crimes is particularly a problem, of course, in disadvantaged and rural communities and during times of civil unrest. Decentralization of force helps to mitigate the under-enforcement problem and decentralization may be a better solution than simply providing more police because many areas where law is under-enforced also, paradoxically, suffer from the effects of what is known as over-criminalization. And this is where an increased police presence could make an over-criminalization problem worse without solving the underlying under-enforcement problem. Second is that there is a huge mismatch in American law between public duties and private rights. And while providing effective law enforcement is a public duty, <laughs> duty. it is not a private right. Individuals thus have no effective claim that the government adequately enforce the law or protect them against unlawful violence. And any attempt to create such a private right would actually create profound separation of powers concerns. And consequently, self-help and private law enforcement are really the best remedies when the government's undersupply of the needed level of police protection. And the third reason is that even if we would grant that government has a monopoly of force, uh, and I'm not granting that, but if we did, it does not follow that government officers are the only ones in whom the government monopoly may be vested. The government is an incorporeal entity whose power must be exercised by human agents. Agents do not perfectly carry out tasks of their principles, and some government officers commit all kinds of malfeasance and nonfeasance, and the decentralization of force provides a remedy to such abuse of office. Ultimately, uh, where we are going to conclude today is that the individual right to bear arms 
still has relevance for both public defense and security, especially in relationship to a concept that I have termed uh, the dual nature of state oppression that we will get back to and define in just a moment. Now, this fact warrants consideration when we determine the scope of the right, including the arms that are protected by the Second Amendment. And it should continue to include those arms whose primary value is public security rather than individual self-defense. Simply put, many Americans are resorting to self-help rather than putting their faith in the government to provide protection. Now, this resort to self-help has become something of a uh, Rorschach test, really, for the role of the Second Amendment during times of civil unrest. Of course, many favoring an expansive Second Amendment praise the efforts of self-reliance and lament the police respond to protests that turn violence to outright riots and to active shooter situations. Uh, for example, Fox News uh, commentator Tucker Carlson very controversially asked in reference to a shooting in Kenosha involving a 17-year-old boy patrolling with an AR-15 rifle, quote, How shocked are we the 17-year-olds with rifles decided they had to maintain order when no one else would? Now, in contrast, Many favoring stricter gun controls are horrified, contending that armed civilian peacekeepers usurp the state's monopoly on violence. They see untrained civilians usurping the role of trained police in managing protests. And recently, a New Mexico district attorney even sought an injunction against members of a militia group. Now, this camp often advocates for severely limiting the kinds of arms in civilian hands believing that non-sporting weapons belong exclusively in the hands of military and police. Which, paradoxically, means that gun control advocates render the entire Second Amendment as being entirely meaningless when they say it is an individual right, but it is only applicable to members of the militia. However, they then turn around and say, but citizens have no right to form the kind of militia we just said they had a right to. And that is what the New Mexico District Attorney uh, and many other public officials who believe it is their duty to work against the formation of these militia groups and anyone else who approaches community safety and self-defense with any kind of spirit of self-reliance. Now, the issue is that both of these perspectives share the same starting assumption, that government ordinarily has a monopoly on force, which it exercises through government officers and employees, including military and police. Uh, we could, uh, for sake of argument, just call this the strong monopoly of force view. And self-defense by private citizens is seen existing as an exemption only when the government's monopoly of force would be ineffective to protect against an individual's harm. Now, both sides may end up with a widely divergent conclusion about the legitimacy of self-help in particular cases and the right to bear arms more generally because they disagree profoundly on whether the government is, in fact, sufficiently protecting the people in its jurisdictions. Those who think the government is not doing so 
naturally will believe in a wider self-help right. But they share that same initial premise that the state ordinarily does have a monopoly of force that it exercises through government agents. Now, the thing is that this premise runs counter to a very long tradition of Anglo-American law decentralizing the use of force. And this goes right back to the Middle Ages when private citizens had a robust authority to make arrests for public crimes, to use force to keep the public peace, and to keep and bear arms. In fact, the decentralization of force was so important to American law in the 18th century that the framers created a limited federal government, divided control of the country's military forces between federal and state government, and explicitly reserved a right of the people to keep and bear arms. And this decentralization of violence is compatible with two philosophical understanding of the state's role in legitimate violence. The first is complete decentralization. That although the government may be a source of legitimate violence, it is at best one of many sources over which no person or entity has a monopoly. The second is what we could call a uh, a, a weak or a partial monopolization degree, and this says that the government outside of emergency self-defense has a monopoly to determine who will use force, but the government may authorize state or non-state actors to exercise that authority. And the conceptual space between these visions is pretty small, though arguably significant uh, as a matter of political theory. Now, I will not purport to settle on one of them or the other in this article, but the argument that follows is, I believe, consistent with both. I believe we can entirely justify why the American system of decentralized violence remains preferable to a government monopoly of force approach, especially in times of emergency and civil unrest. The strong monopoly of force approach has three principal shortcomings. First, the supply of law enforcement falls far short of demand. Decentralizing force allows private citizens to defend their interests and to avoid uh, and to protect the public when the government under enforces the law. Decentralizing force also avoids the pitfalls of hiring more police. And many areas that suffer from under-enforcement can commonly suffer from, as we talked about earlier, the effects of over-criminalization, such as the excessively harsh enforcement of drug laws. Private law enforcement allows citizens to protect their interests while not risking the externalities caused by excessive enforcement that can come from flooding areas with too much professional police. Now, second, when it comes to the obligation of the state to protect its citizens, Anglo-American law has a mismatch between duty and right. Under the public duty doctrine, the government is under no obligation to furnish any individual citizen with police protection or law enforcement. So even if the state has some obscure public duty to furnish police protection in general, individuals lack any means of enforcement when the government refuses to protect them. 
Recognizing the legitimacy of self-help and law enforcement by private persons will fill the gap between public duties and protecting private rights. Moreover, it protects the needs for courts to deem police protection to be a private right. Now, although recognizing police protection to be a private right might seem like an easy fix, such a reversal in traditional public law doctrine would severely intrude on many issues of separation of powers. Courts would be placed in the position of second-guessing executive enforcement decisions and priorities, and judges and juries would essentially be acting as super-superintendents of the police. And third, even if the government has a monopoly on force, that does not in any way imply that the government's monopoly may only be exercised through a professional state employee. Quite the contrary, I would argue. State agents are imperfect agents of state power. As recent civil unrest has shown us, individual state agents, including police officers, police officials, and prosecutors, may refuse to exercise the power of the state to punish those who have violated the law by breaching the peace and violating others' rights. Private force will mitigate the problem of state agent malfeasance and nonfeasance. When citizens protect themselves against unlawful violence and civil unrest, citizens act in both citizens act in both private self-defense and on behalf of the state in keeping the peace. And they have a legitimate claim that they are exercising whatever monopoly of force the state may claim to have. And a much more legitimate claim than the executive official who will turn a blind eye to violence that society has made unlawful, unlawful through democratic legislation. In these cases, diffusing power to private citizens provides a means to prevent improper circumvention by executive officials of their duties to the public to faithfully enforce the law. And therein lies this concept that I mentioned earlier about the dual nature of state oppression. First, oppression can come at the hands of state actors as perpetrators of violence against individuals. And second, oppression at the hands of criminals perpetrating violence from which the government either cannot or will not adequately protect individuals from. So how does all this relate back to the Second Amendment? Well, the right to keep and bear arms plays a critical role in diffusing executive authority. Just as the war power of the national government is the power to wage war successfully, the right of self-defense and the power to enforce the law must include some power to exercise these functions successfully. The possession of weapons plays a crucial role in this by allowing those of unequal strength, power, and numbers to overcome their adversaries. And when those adversaries are individuals acting illegitimately against the public peace, the private right to bear arms serves both a public and a private end. And that right may be especially important when government agents are unable or unwilling to supply the necessary police protection. 
and prohibitions on the civilian possession of heavier weapons. Uh, for example, the uh, rifles with high-capacity ammunition magazines that have been coming under fire lately, no pun intended. Now, these kinds of laws may make it impossible for grossly outnumbered individuals to protect themselves against a lawless mass violence and for communities to restore order when their government is unable or unwilling to do so. This is why we should all be very wary of claims that the Second Amendment is compatible with permitting only the police and military to use arms primarily appropriate for enforcing the law. Quite the contrary. The Second Amendment recognizes this long-standing tradition of decentralizing the means of political violence. Now, that phrase may terrify many people, but properly decentralized political violence assists the state in keeping the peace and enforcing the law, providing a check against private and public forms of domination, reinforcing separation of powers, and promoting individual liberty as well as security. But what exactly is this monopoly of force, you may be asking yourself. Well, the phrase originates from the German sociologist Max Weber's definition of government. He defined government as, quote, that entity which claims a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence in a given area, end quote. Now, this concept of a monopoly on violence being what distinguishes a nation-state from actors in the private sector will not be the first definition that most people come up with of a nation-state. However, you can guarantee that this is a fundamental distinction that those public sector actors will make. The, 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 the core of uh, our military's relationship to the nation and how accountability is structured. I, I, I think you are privatizing uh, something that uh, is what essentially sets a nation state apart, which is the monopoly on, on violence. And so under the monopoly of force approach, the government supplies preventative policing and law enforcement. And that is to say, the government has the exclusive right to use force to prevent crimes, enforce the law, and punish wrongdoers. Private individuals retain the right to use force only in self-defense against particular imminent threats. Now, American law strongly protected the right of citizens to have arms of a kind using war and public defense. I would like to uh, turn to uh, a quote by the great Tench Cox here. He said, Congress shall have no power to disarm the people. Their swords and every other terrible implement of the soldier are the birthright of an American. The unlimited power of the sword is not in the hands of either the federal or state government, but where I trust it ever will remain in the hands of the people.
So, as I said, American law strongly protected the right of citizens to have arms of a kind used in war and public defense. Now, in the Militia Act of 1792, it indeed required able-bodied citizens to possess arms appropriate for military service. American judicial decisions throughout the 19th century and early 20th century left no question that the heart of the right to keep and bear arms was the right to keep and bear firearms of a kind employed in civilized warfare. They were in complete agreement on the right to own arms for public defense purposes. The U.S. Supreme Court followed this thinking in 1939 in the case of U.S. v. Miller when it held that the Second Amendment protected those arms which are, and I quote, part of the ordinary military equipment or the use of which could contribute to the common defense, end quote. So the conventional understanding is that the government maintains a monopoly of force. The use of individual force is reserved for cases of immediate self-defense when the government lacks the power or willingness to prevent that violence. And many scholars accept either explicitly or implicitly the government agents alone may exercise the government's monopoly on force to enforce the law and maintain the peace. Now, to borrow a quotation from Albert Dicey, the strong monopoly of force account, quote, has but one fault. The statement it contains are the direct opposite of the truth, end quote. This is simply true. No such monopoly of force has historically existed, nor does it exist today. In this country... At the time of its founding, Americans faced two problems, not one, with government force. With no army and no professional police. America at the time followed the English model when it came to policing. So the first problem, and the obvious problem, was that the government did not have enough centralized force. So in America, just as in 12th century England, a weak central government meant that the government had to rely on private citizens for national defense and policing. But bare necessity is not the only issue here. The founding generation also did not trust professional soldiers and peace officers. Many soldiers and peace officers are unprincipled men who were nevertheless vested with the authority of the government use of force. And it is for that reason that it should come as absolutely no surprise that the framers increased the amount of force available to the federal government while at the same time they simultaneously provided that no government in the United States would maintain a monopoly on force. The framers divided the military establishment among a federal and state government. The Second Amendment further went on to protect the right of the people to keep and bear arms, allowing citizens to possess the means of violence, which, again, Anglo-American citizens had traditionally kept since the days of the 12th century's Aziz of Arms. And the right of the government to employ force was diffused by decentralizing political power. 
It was always meant to be that the federal government would have few enumerated powers that presumably would not require an extensive national law enforcement apparatus. The states would retain the police power and thus more control over the everyday lives of Americans. The framers believed that liberty across a large and diverse country could be preserved best not by recognizing the government's monopoly of legitimate force, but indeed by actively rejecting it. Yet, despite the rise of professional military and police, American use of force remains decentralized. At first glance, we might think that the government of the United States has just a duopoly of legitimate violence, a splitting of the atom of sovereignty among a federal and state government. But that small modification to this concept fails to capture how truly decentralized the right to violence in this country actually is. Now, state laws are mostly enforced by state officials, though uh, there are some state police, but it's usually done by officials uh, of a non-sovereign jurisdiction, meaning municipal and county governments. That is to say, although the state legislatures make the law, policing is a local function performed by local employees accountable to local governments, thus making this duopoly of force a triopoly of force. And consider that many states allow private police force. Disney World and the University of Pennsylvania are two examples of people who employ fully sworn police officers with full law enforcement authority, but they are not employed, but they are employed, excuse me, they are employed by the business and not the government. Businesses and even governments employ armed and unarmed security guards. The people who guard federal courthouses carry guns and handcuffs and they have arresting authority as special duty U.S. Marshals. However, they remain private contractors, not federal employees. Private security officers actually many people are very surprised to learn this, actually outnumber law enforcement personnel. And when it comes to political supervision of municipal and county police, local governments do not unilaterally set official policies for their law enforcement agencies. Instead, private insurance companies that indemnify local governments for police misconduct play a large role in setting official police policies. Now, outside of police and licensed security agents, American law also recognizes that private citizens may exercise a legitimate use of force. Although the precise rules about this do vary by jurisdiction, private citizens retain a significant authority to make arrests for felonies and for breaches of the peace. And U.S. citizens privately own about 40% of all world wide firearm giving them ample access to the means of violence the reason that animated the framers to decentralize force remains with us today even in our age of professional military and police
Now, now that we have identified two problems with public force at our framing, which the first would be that there was not enough governmental resources to maintain public security with public employees, and secondly, a fear that professional public security employees could oppress the population. I think we can recast these concerns in a contemporary set of more Republican terms, that the framers decentralized force to prevent domination of the public and private actors. Decentralizing force provided a check against oppressive governmental actors, and decriminalizing force allowed private citizens to supplement government officers in preventing and punishing crimes, thereby preventing criminals from exploiting honest citizens. Now, uh, I want to move on to argue that our continued decentralization of force will, should and will continue to serve that same purpose. And this is for three reasons. And this is vesting a near monopoly on the use of legitimate violence solely in the government and its agents would be highly problematic for a number of reasons. Now, some of this we've talked about recently, I mean, earlier in this video, but, you know, first, again, there is the paradox uh, that we suffer from both a lack of adequate police enforcement and over-criminalization, and that these two problems can actually uh, make each other worse. Again, this is because the government provides insufficient policing services, especially in poor and disadvantaged communities, to prevent and investigate many core crimes such as murder, assault, and robbery. But in these areas, the government will harshly enforce other laws such as drug use. Private law enforcement can help mitigate the under-enforcement problem while avoiding the pitfalls of simply hiring more police, which results in the exacerbation of disproportionate over-enforcement of regulatory offenses. Second, we need to understand... that individuals have no private right to policing services, none. Because of this, we thus have a mismatch between duties and rights. Even if the government owes a public duty to provide police protection, no one has a private right to enforce this duty in court. And any attempt to convert this public right into a private right would, again, create several separation of powers and policy issues. And third, state agents act as imperfect conduits of state power. They may improperly exercise the state's power to use force in any number of ways, such as committing nonfeasance by improperly refusing to enforce the law or committing misfeasance by using force improperly. Private law enforcement will provide an alternative path to combat both forms of misconduct by state agents. So, the, prof the professionalization, I should say, of the military and the police is, is very clear, I believe. It can be said that it has not solved the resource problem and that a private supplementation of professional police remains absolutely necessary. Nor has this professionalization of military and police solved the potential for government officers to oppress the population. 
nor will it ever solve that problem, either directly or through neglect. And it's because of this that decentralizing force remains an important way to preserve Republican freedom as non-domination. So, those who believe that private arms bearing is somehow anachronistic will make assertions that professional soldiers and police now perform the public security function once played by private citizens, but this is simply wrong. Government agents under-enforce core crimes, and these problems only become more acute during times of civil unrest, such as those we are living through and have just recently lived through. And in these situations, private use of force as a supplement for force by state agents remains an important part of a distribution of legitimate force. While overcriminalization in American criminal law garners significant attention, especially now, because of allegations of police misconduct, under-enforcement of criminal law remains a very serious problem. Now, if we want to measure things by what are known uh, to law enforcement as clearance rates, which means the number of arrests versus reported crimes, police make arrests for about 62% of all murders, 35% of all rapes, 30% of all robberies, 14% of all burglaries, and 19% of all thefts. More generally, official clearance rates are around 45% overall for violent crime and 15 to 20% for property crime. But we need to keep in mind that even these numbers overstate police effectiveness. The fact is many individuals do not report crime because they may view the crime as a personal matter or they may consider the crime insufficiently important or they may fear that the police would offer insufficient public assistance or that they would somehow face a reprisal for this reporting. Now, in 2018, police cleared about 10% of all known crimes, including 62% of murders, 6% of rapes, 14% of robberies, 9% of thefts, and 6% of burglaries. So, the vast majority of serious crimes seem to result in almost no arrest, let alone a successful prosecution. And like many government services, in fact, I would say really like all government services, we have to understand that policing is redistributive. And furthermore, under-enforcement is not just the result of systemic neglect of potentially marginalized populations, but under-enforcement also results from deliberate, overt discrimination against disfavored victims. The fact is, during Reconstruction and Jim Crow, white murderers were routinely not prosecuted or convicted for crimes against blacks. And until the 1970s, police simply did not enforce domestic violence crimes, viewing them as a personal family issue. Concerns about under-enforcement only get more acute in the times of civil unrest through which we are currently living. In California, Minnesota, Ohio, Oregon, Washington, and elsewhere, we have seen police officers told to stand down while protesters engaged in violence, burned buildings, and looted stores. 
as a resident of Minneapolis myself, I was witness to possibly the worst violence and destruction following the death of George Floyd at the hands of the Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. There are still entire neighborhoods that resemble bombed out Syrian villages like what we would regularly see shown on TV, on the news, during Obama and Trump's tenure as president. Going back a little further, the Rodney King riots. Police were outmanned and outgunned, leading the police chief to order the Los Angeles Police Department to simply retreat. This, in part, was what led to the famous images of the Korean business owners on top of their stores, uh, now infamously known as the Roof Koreans, with their semi-automatic rifles protecting their businesses. Now, one business owner said that he did not see any law enforcement for three whole days. And in that situation, government officials may use the National Guard or the Army to reinforce local police, but calling in supplemental force takes time, and enormous destruction occurs in the interim. And the harms caused by under-enforcement are absolutely significant. There are, of course, the immediate harms caused by the crimes themselves. Bodily injury, emotional harm, loss of property, and in the case of homicide, loss of life. But the harm is much more than that. Under-enforcement disrupts the ability of all people in the jurisdiction to execute life plans by causing them to lose security for their persons and their property. The fact is a person will not invest in a business that he fears will be burned and looted with impunity at any moment. And given that under-enforcement remains such a serious problem, it is difficult to understand why we should centralize more force in the government by limiting self-help. Many think that the only state employees should provide public security because they believe in strong civilian gun control, and the prohibition of a citizen's arrest. But, vesting a true monopoly of force in the government makes the situation worse, not better. And if the government cannot provide adequate police services, the least it can do is allow its citizens to protect themselves and to act as an auxiliary to the police to enforce the laws. Failing to provide adequate police services and prohibiting self-help effectively immunizes the wrongdoers thereby causing the government to be complicit in the wrongdoing. And in this way, our legal system will undermine its own legitimacy. Just look at what happened recently in Uvalde, Texas, where 376 cops refused to engage a single active shooter for 73 minutes during which time 19 children and two adults were murdered. Now, while these officers' cowardice was mitigated enough that they had no problem confronting and even arresting anyone who tried to enter the school to do the necessary worst of risking their lives to end the shooter's life, to save the life of injured victims if possible, We even saw an example of a Uvalde police officer whose wife was shot, who was physically prevented from entering the school to try and save her. 
A similar problem can occur when governments prohibit private citizens from possessing certain weapons primarily useful for public safety. Uh, and this would include even non-lethals like tear gas or stun guns, I guess. But perhaps one of the best examples would be uh, the recent case involving uh, Mark and Patty McCloskey uh, down in St. Louis. I'm sure we all remember uh, the famous video footage uh, where, well, what they say happened, we don't have this on video, is that several protesters forcibly broke into their private street to protest police violence. The McCloskeys claim that several protesters threatened to burn their home. And in response, we have the video footage now of the McCluskeys uh, sort of infamously uh, standing in the curtilage of their own home with a handgun and an AR-15 rifle. Now, in this kind of situation, would it not be preferable for private citizens to have access to various riot control agents instead of deadly force? A similar problem exists when a state licenses private citizens to carry firearms but prohibits them from having stun guns. A lack of access to such less than lethal weapons can perversely cause private citizens to use more defensive force than would be necessary. And at the other end of the spectrum, we should also be very skeptical of claims that semi-automatic rifles belong exclusively to the police. Let me return to a very famous comment made by Joe Biden about how a homeowner should use their double-barrel shotgun instead of an AR-15 to defend their home. Hey, if you want to protect yourself, get a double-barrel shotgun, have the shells, a 12-gauge shotgun, and I promise you, as I told my wife, we live in an area that's wooded and somewhat secluded. I said, Jill, if there's ever a problem, just walk out on the balcony here or walk out, put that double-barrel shotgun and fire two blasts outside the house. I promise you, who's ever coming in is not going to... You don't need an AR-15. It's harder to aim. It's harder to use. And in fact, you don't need 30 rounds to protect yourself. Buy a shotgun. Buy a shotgun. Fucking clown. But anyways, setting aside the fact that his suggestion there violates any number of state laws that are, in many states, felonies, meaning that the president's advice on using guns to protect yourself in your own home in a way that Joe Biden deems acceptable would likely lead to your lifelong loss of your right to own a gun to protect yourself in your home. Anyways, the, the, the big issue, well, besides the prompting you to commit a felony that would cost you your Second Amendment right, the other big issue with what he just said is that, sure, maybe, possibly, the firepower of a double-barrel shotgun may be sufficient against one not particularly determined burglar. It would not be adequate for a business owner trying to secure his business against a riot particularly when the police decide that they are going to be unavailable for an extended period of time. In technical legal terms, the provision of law enforcement may create a public duty, but we have to remember it does not create a private right. In making it a private right, 
is something we shouldn't even think about doing because that would create any number of profound separation of powers problems. Now, it is Hornbook 1L tort law that individuals lack any private right to adequate police protection. The usual rule is that public entities are free of all liability for failure to provide police or fire protection, even if that failure was negligent. Similarly, statutes or judicial decisions usually exclude liability for failing to arrest a dangerous person who later harms or kills others. In the cases establishing the lack of a private right uh, involves some really, really heinous facts and terrible derelictions of police duty. But I think it's important we talk about them anyway here, at least briefly. In Rith versus City of New York, a young woman was stalked by a man who threatened to kill or maim her if she did not accede to his sexual advances. After the woman became engaged to another man, the stalker called her to warn her that this was her last chance. The woman reported the threat to the police and pleaded for protection, but police refused to provide it. The next morning, her stalker threw lie in her face, blinding her in one eye, damaging her vision in the other eye, and permanently scarring her all over her face. It was only after this disfiguring assault that the police decided to provide her the protection she requested. And despite these facts, New York's highest court held that New York City Police Department did not owe that woman any duty of care. The court explained that the amount of protection that may be provided is limited by the resources of the community and by a considered legislative executive decision as to how those resources may be deployed. Now, the dissent noted that the rather bitter irony was that she was required to rely for protection on New York because New York law prohibited her from being armed for self-defense. And now that she was injured, the city denies all responsibility to her. In the case of Braswell v. Braswell, a wife left her husband who was a deputy sheriff. Now, when the wife told her husband that she was leaving, he told her that neither her nor her son were going anywhere and if he could not have her, nobody else could. The wife went to the sheriff to express her fear that her husband was going to kill her, especially after she found a letter written by her husband to their child explaining why he killed the boy's mother and asking his son to forgive this transgression. She reported this letter to the sheriff, who sent two deputies to check out the husband. The deputies reported back that the husband appeared neither homicidal nor suicidal. Although the sheriff did agree to have other deputies watch the wife, her husband still shot and killed her. And a North Carolina Supreme Court decision reaffirmed the common law rule that a municipality and its agents act for the benefit of the public and therefore there is no liability for the failure to furnish police protection to specific individuals. The court further found that no exception to the public duty doctrine applied to that sheriff's promise to watch the wife because it was not specific enough to create a duty. 
Now, federal constitutional law recognizes an analogous doctrine uh, that is known as a state's failure to protect an individual against private violence, but that this simply does not constitute a violation of the due process clause. Now, this comes from a case known as DeShaney v. Winnebago, and this involves a father who uh, beat his son, causing the boy to suffer permanent and severe brain damage. This came after the county's Department of Social Services received reports, including from other family members and emergency room staff, about how the father was abusing the son. The county offered voluntarily counsel to the father, but decided against removing the boy from the home. The Supreme Court held that the county was not liable for a constitutional tort because a due process clause protected only against state deprivations of life and liberty, not those by private parties. Because of the public duty doctrine, restrictions on self-defense leave a clear mismatch between public rights and private duties. Even if a government is under a duty to provide police protection to the public, no individual member of the public has a personal right to that protection. Thus, if the government refuses adequate protection, a person cannot go to court and demand it. This means that with respect to contemporary civil disorders, uh, such as individuals in uh, Portland and Seattle, as we have seen recently, uh, and other areas too, where police have simply pulled back and have no legal there is no legal mechanism left to compel police to protect anyone at all in their lives, homes, or business. And nor do these people in areas where, in response to public criticism, police have simply pulled back and refused to vigorously enforce the law. Nowhere have they received a private right to police do the job at all, let alone do it well. Now, in terms of retrospective damages, the public duty doctrine effectively leaves victims of crimes and civil disorder radically undercompensated. In many cases, victims are unlikely to identify the people causing harm. Even if they do, the perpetrators are likely judgment-proof, and the victim has no tort claim against a government for failure to protect. And this is where the right to bear arms fills the gap between public duty and private right. By decentralizing the use of force, the Second Amendment allows individual citizens to supplement the government's use of force when the supplementation may be necessary. A government that has no monopoly of force has no moral responsibility to extend supplemental police protection or to indemnify for losses. If governmental protection is inadequate, individuals retain their full self-help remedies. And individuals are not limited merely to self-help. In our system, individuals also have the authority to act on behalf of the state by making arrests and using force to prevent forcible felonies 
and breaches of the peace. In other words, they may protect not only themselves but also their communities. This power takes on critical importance when police are unable or unwilling to provide adequate police protection, especially during these times of civil unrest. Now, to wrap up addressing state agents and the monopoly of force, I want to discuss one final uh, theoretical problem with the traditional monopoly of force view. That is to say that even if it is true, in some abstract sense, that the state could be said to have a monopoly on force, it does not follow that state agents are the only people who can exercise force on behalf of the state. And to the contrary, there's every reason to believe private citizens may exercise state power. The power of private citizens to use violence on behalf of the state has long been recognized as a common law right. Take self-defense just as an example. It took centuries for English law to clearly recognize any private right of self-defense. Under early English common law, a person acting in private self-defense needed a, to secure a pardon. By the time of the framing, English common law allowed individuals to use deadly force in self-defense. But scholars dis, uh, dispute whether the common law justified or merely excused individuals who used deadly force for private self-defense. However, in contrast, English law fully justify the use of force to prevent a forcible felony, an act that was taken on behalf of the state. Of course, these categories do overlap. A person acting to prevent rape or robbery acted both in personal defense and to prevent a felony. But the common law treated private violence more favorably when it was used on behalf of the public. And underneath these rules are two important principles. First, even if a state has a monopoly on violence, there is nothing a priori inconsistent about allowing private citizens to exercise that monopoly on behalf of the government. The government's distinctive claim on the subject of that jurisdiction is the duty to have the government's directive obeyed. A private citizen enforcing the law consistent with the state's directive is not acting in derogation of the state's monopoly of force. And second, public law enforcement officers, by virtue of their office, do not have a claim to be acting on behalf of the state at all times. Again, the state is an incorporeal entity. Like a corporation, it exercises its power through individual agents. But the mere fact that a state agent performs an act does not mean that the act should be attributed to the state. Agents can exceed or abuse the authority given by their principles. A proper respect for the rule of law recognizes that state agents, no less than private citizens, lack a legitimate claim to exercise the state's monopoly of force when they fail to properly exercise the authority given by government. Let me put this in a more simple and concrete uh, uh, form. When Officer Derek Chauvin knelt on George Floyd's neck until he died, he exceeded his authority under state law to use deadly force. 
He had already subdued and handcuffed Floyd, so his continued application of force was not necessary to effectuate Floyd's arrest. Because Chauvin's use of force exceeded the bounds of state law, he lost any claim to be exercising that state's monopoly on force. And should a private citizen have intervened, saying, uh, having pushed the officer off of Floyd's neck, the private citizen would have had the superior claim to exercising the state's monopoly of force in that moment, despite the fact that Chauvin was the one wearing the badge. Like actions, omissions are another way in which government officers can lose their claim to be properly exercising the state's monopoly on force. The state's policy is not reducible to the policy of its individual law enforcement officers, including those who hold high office. So consider, for example, recent claim that police and prosecutors have, quote, pulled back and are refusing to enforce the law diligently. Now, the state has made it unlawful to commit certain crimes, including violence to persons, destruction of property, theft, and rioting. Now, these are laws that have resulted from uh, our engagement in the democratic process. So suppose, after police refuse to enforce the laws against rioting and looting, private citizens fill the void. As the enforcer of democratically enacted laws, private citizens who enforce these laws have a better claim to exercising the state's monopoly of force than the police who are engaged in that nonfeasance. Here again, we see this decentralization of force is essential to prevent illegitimate domination by public and private actors. Individuals lack any effective remedy against police who refuse to enforce the law, and the creation of a judicial remedy would not be desirable because it would create a profound separation of powers problem. Decentralization of force provides an alternative way to bypass executive officers engaged in nonfeasance and misfeasance when police refuse to stop lawless violence, private citizens can. So, even if one was to concede that a state has a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence, and this is still a point I am not conceding, but if one did concede that, there is nothing that would inherently require state officers to exercise the state's monopoly on force. There's no reason a private citizen may not exercise it with equal, if not greater, authority. So, in federalizing the government, splitting control of the armed forces, and protecting the right of the people to keep and bear arms, our framers made a conscious decision here to decentralize the right to the use of force. That decision retains its vitality today, even with the rise of professional police and soldiers, the government does not supply the full quantity of law enforcement and security services that the public demands. And while today's soldiers and police officers are better trained and more competent than those of centuries ago, problems caused by rogue officers and policy makers remain. In a legal system where the supply is inadequate, the supply of police, excuse me, is inadequate to meet the demand and where no one has an enforceable private right to police protection, the government has a duty to allow self-help and the means of self-help. The right is especially important during times of civil unrest when the government may be unable or unwilling to provide such security. 
And the right to bear arms is still about more than just individual self-defense. When individuals bear arms, they also exercise force on behalf of the community by preventing forcible felonies. Professional police and soldiers may have reduced the need for private law enforcement, but they have not rendered the original public meaning of the Second Amendment obsolete. Well, that is all I've got for you guys here today. Um, I know I said I was going to fill you in about the book here at the end of the video, but this has already gone so much longer uh, than most of my videos do. So um, I am going to put links down in the description to where you can go and read about the book, where you can go uh, order it, put your pre-order in if you want, find out about some of the perks you get if you choose to pre-order it, all that good stuff. Uh, it'll be down in the video description and then in the next video, I'll spend some time at the end uh, catching you guys up on that kind of personally. So uh, anyways, until then, this has been Bob for Legalese talking about uh, the monopoly on violence. And uh, I guess all that's left to say is Cartago de Lenda Est.